Lord Jesus, you are the great king. Lord, we are seeing that in the pages of Matthew. We thank you for it. We thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see more of you. And Lord, that our exceedingly great joy would be you, Lord Jesus. Lord, help, um, help me to be clear as I speak this morning. Help us to listen, all of us, myself included. Have, give us ears to listen and bless your word. Uh, we love you. We honor you. We want to hear from you. Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did you know, did you know that sitting in church is extremely dangerous? Did you know that? And I'm not talking because of COVID, although there are many who would have you believe that. And nor am I talking because of something like an armed gunman coming in and opening fire. No, the true danger of sitting in church, why it's extremely dangerous, is because you and I will be held accountable to the truth of God's word that you learn here. That is why church is extremely dangerous. Hebrews 6, uh, verse uh, 4, puts it this way, 6, 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be Burned. You see, the reality of Scripture and the reality of what Hebrews is saying there is that the Word of God is like rain, and it will either harden the soil on which it falls, bake it, or it will soften it. But we will all be held accountable to what we hear from the Word of God. The authority is in this text, right? The text itself is God's Word. And we hear it, we learn from it week in and week out. And really, the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond? And if you respond wrongly, with a hardened heart, with apathy, or with hostility, then God will hold you accountable. And really, what's going on today in Matthew, in Matthew 2, as we uh, continue our trek through the Gospel of Matthew, is he's addressing that response, that difference in response. What is the proper response to truth? What is the proper response to the truth of Jesus? And as Jesus being king, you know that Matthew's purpose, we've talked about it before, Matthew is all about Jesus being king. And he's calling his audience, a Jewish audience, to allegiance for Jesus as king. He wants his audience to swear allegiance to Jesus as king, to seek first the kingdom, and to walk as followers of the king. That's what he's aiming for in the whole book. 
And in this first portion of the book, he is presenting to us the king. He is, he is saying, here is the king stepping onto the stage of history. Here's who he is. Here is who he is in fulfilling prophecy. And he's also asking question, and he's going to be asking this question through the book of Matthew. How will you respond to this king? You see, if you think about the Jewish audience to whom Matthew is writing, he's probably writing to a mix of believers and unbelievers at the same time. But even those believing Jews who are swearing allegiance to Jesus as king, who are following him, their friends, their fellow Jews who didn't hold to Jesus as Messiah, they would think they were foolish, utterly foolish. If he's, he's a Messiah, why was he crucified? If he's the Messiah, where's his kingdom? And so really, a lot of Matthew is addressed not only at the, it's reaffirming those who are already Christians, but it's also challenging and arguing against that mindset that, that, Jesus, uh, that, that, that Jesus as king, Jesus as Messiah is foolish. And so even already in Matthew's gospel, we saw in the genealogy, Matthew is presenting the credentials for Jesus to for the claim for him to be king. We saw last week that holy conception that he clarified. This is at one time in all of history has there been a virgin conception that was prophesied and shows that this is the king. And now what Matthew's going to do in 2, 1 through 12 is he's going to pivot and say, all right, here's the king. He's entered human history. How will you respond to him? How will you respond to the true king stepping onto the stage of history. So in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, he, Matthew will confirm more prophecy. He's already been doing that already in what we've seen in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he'll confirm more prophecy about Jesus and how he fulfills that prophecy, further establishing his credentials as king. But he will also contrast right and wrong responses to Jesus which leads us to the main idea for this text. This is what Matthew wants his readers to come away with from this text, and what you need to come away with, it's this. Joyfully reverence Jesus the King and guard yourself from knowledgeable apathy or hostility. That's, that's what this text is about. That's what Matthew's trying to do for his audience, and that's what we need to take away this morning, that you need to joyfully reverence Jesus the King and you need to guard yourself from knowledgeable apathy or hostility. There's a, both a call here, but also a warning. A call and also a warning. So let's see how this plays out in the text. And let's start with verses 1 and 2. And we could talk, talk about this section, this part of the story, being the foolish arrival to reverence the king. The foolish arrival to reverence the king. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him or to do homage to him. So the story shifts, and Matthew sets the stage. Uh, what's actually happened, uh, Matthew doesn't actually record the birth of Jesus. Did you notice that? Uh, he predicts it. He talks about it. He talks about the virgin conception, but then he talks about this is after Jesus has been born, and he has been born in Bethlehem, and he's been born uh, in Bethlehem of Judea during the days of Herod the Great. Herod the Great. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Herod the king. 
Herod the king. And all of a sudden, uh, coming into Jerusalem one day are magi, not wise men, not kings, magi. Who were the magi? The magi were uh, what we might call today astrologers. Astrologers from probably Persia or Babylon, from the east. They're coming from the east of Israel, from Babylon or from Persia. And they wouldn't be kings, but they might be in the court of whoever the rulers are. Uh, the, but what these folks are, they're, they're astronomers of a sort. They're looking at the stars. You can actually, the, a lot of the archaeological evidence, they've uncovered a lot of the, the, the tables of calculations and positioning of stars. But they did that not just in and of itself as a science to understand the positioning of the stars and where they're at and the cycles of things, but they did it for the purpose of prediction, prediction of events that would happen. Uh, it would be like today, if uh, in a, a more uh, kind of silly example, it would be like your horoscope. I almost thought today about uh, uh, coming up here and starting and reading today's horoscope. How would you feel if I read a horoscope from the pulpit, right? Now, uh, that, you would think that, that, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that, right? But that's the sort of kind of knowledge that these folks have. They're looking at the stars and they're trying to say, okay, how do they, how do they predict uh, certain events that are coming in history? And here's what you have to understand, too. What I just said, the horror you would feel if I stood up here and read a horoscope is the sort of horror that the Jews would have felt in relation to these folks. They wouldn't have viewed them as wise men at all. They would view them as foolish uh, that their knowledge, so uh, quote-unquote, is condemned in Scripture, and it's foolish. They don't have the Scriptures. All they have is the stars, and they're looking at the stars, the stars that God himself has created and ordained, and they're trying to look at secret knowledge to try to predict uh, what's happening in the world. And yet, here we see that these ones have come to Jerusalem, and they asked this question. It, we don't know how many there were. Uh, we, there's probably not three. There's probably more than three, honestly. But they come to Jerusalem, this, this caravan, or this, uh, and they cause a commotion. They wander into Jerusalem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, it's unclear whether they know that Herod is the king, and it's unclear whether they know that whether or not he had a son. But it seems kind of a little presumptuous, a little bumbling uh, to walk into the capital of a nation and start asking, hey, where's he who's been born king of the Jews and causing a ruckus? And that's what they're doing, right? Because the, people are hearing this, they're asking this question. Uh, it says in a little bit that they're, they're stirring up the city. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, question is, how, how do these folks, how do these magi, how do these astrologers from the east figure this out? And we might say, uh, well, if they're from Babylon, there's, that's where Israel went into exile. And so it's possible, and we know from, from history, that there was still a large contingent of Jews in Babylon and in that area. So it's possible these guys had access to the Hebrew scriptures. It's possible that they knew of prophecies in the scriptures about the Messiah. But the text doesn't say that, does it? It actually, the text itself, gives the reason for why they came. For we saw his star when it rose, when it rose and have come to worship him. So that language there, we have, the reason they give for why they've come and why they're asking this question of where is the king of the Jews is their astrology. <laughs> 
They somehow, in God's providence, God orchestrated things in such a way that they actually came to Jerusalem to actually worship the king of the Jews, and yet the reason was their foolish knowledge of astrology. That's what the text says. Now, it's possible, and many have done research on this, that uh, at this time in history, it's possible there might have been a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter was representing, uh, you know, the rise of kings, and Saturn was supposed to represent the Jewish nation, and they came together, and maybe they worked it out, right, that this is where they go. We don't know, but whatever the case, however it looked, we know that based on their study of the stars, their astrology is why they came. And notice the purpose for why they came uh, star, star when it's rose, and have come to worship him. Now, the word for worship, it can mean worship uh, of God, but it can also just convey the idea of doing homage, doing, uh, doing reverence to a superior monarch or king. And given the, the focus of Jesus as king, that's probably the sense here, that they're coming to do homage to him, to, show that, to, 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 to do tribute to him, to do reverence to him, to show that Jesus is the superior, the true king, the king of the Jews, this, this magnificent king, and we're going to, because he's a superior king, we're going to do reverence or homage to this king. Now that's a... That's a, it's a sort of a foolish arrival, isn't it? This, this shouldn't happen, that Gentiles who are astrologers with not accurate knowledge, with a sort of foolish knowledge, are able to discern under God's providence that there has, the king of the Jews has been born and that they can come to do homage to him. They probably don't even know the prophecy. Maybe they do. We don't know, but of Numbers 24. But the Jewish audience would know. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 24. And what I'm about to read is a messianic prophecy. But we're not even sure that the Magi knew about this prophecy. And yet the Jews in Jerusalem, and especially Matthew's Jewish audience, probably is aware of it. Numbers 24, 17 says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of or rise out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And this is spoken by the prophet or the magician, Balaam. Uh, Balaam is not portrayed well in the text at all. He's also portrayed as a foolish sort of magician, kind of like the Magi, but he accurately speaks a prophecy about the rising of a star, the rising of a ruler coming out of Israel, the ultimate king to come. So the Magi may know this, may, they may not, we don't know, but at least the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews of, of Matthew's audience would know this prophecy. They hear about a star rising and they would have thought about this text of the king, the true king, the ultimate king coming. And yet it's surprising that it's folks with a foolish sort of knowledge are coming and know, uh, come to worship, to do reverence to this king. So that's what we've seen in verses 1 through 2, the foolish arrival to reverence the king. 
which now transitions us into the next movement in the story in verses 3 through 8, which we could characterize this way, the knowledgeable apathy and hostility to the king. The knowledgeable apathy and hostility to the king. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king, now notice uh, it started off by describing Herod the king, and then the Magi are asking, hey, where's the king of the Jews? And then we've got a transition back to Herod the king. There's a, there's a contrast set up. Who's the true king? When Herod the king heard this, so they've been going around, walking into Jerusalem, hey, where's the king of the Jews, or the one born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now let's talk about Herod for a minute. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. He was not a Jew. Remember, actually, Numbers 24 just referenced Edom, and it's kind of interesting, and I think that's why this passage is, one of the reasons why uh, this passage is referencing Numbers 24, 17, right? You've got Herod, who's an Edomite, who's not a good king. He's not the true king of Israel. He's not from the Davidic line. And this man was efficient ruler, yes. Rome had put him in place in 37 BC over all of Israel. So he's a client king. He's under the thumb of Rome, but they give him jurisdiction and rulership over Israel. But this, this man had been power hungry, bloodthirsty. He's politically savvy, yes, but he's also paranoid. He's, he's paranoid to maintain his rule. He, he was so paranoid of people scheming against his throne that he actually killed his own wife and a couple of his kids because he thought they were, they were scheming against him. And right about now, he, this is near the end of his life. He died in 4 BC, probably, and so right now, it's about the end of his life. And even extra-biblical records show that near the end of his life, he became increasingly paranoid. And he's concerned about, uh, he wrote numerous wills and changed them multiple times to, keep, to put the right son on the throne. So he's very protective and concerned about his dynasty. And so we can understand why the text says that when Herod heard this, he was troubled, stirred up. And all Jerusalem with him. Why is Jerusalem stirred up? Well, when Herod gets troubled, heads start to roll, rather literally. Uh, it's, not, it, it, it's nothing good when Herod is upset, right? And so not only with these wise men or with these magi coming in and, and uh, asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Well, that's going to upset Herod, and that's going to upset all of us. We don't want to rock the boat. Uh, we don't want to rock the boat with Herod. And now the focus turns to Herod and what Herod does. When Herod the king heard that he would, this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod takes action. He assembles the, the seminary professors and the theological um, uh, masters of the day, and he gathers them together and asks where the Christ was to be born. Now notice, what did the Magi say? They said, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king over the Jews? And Herod equates that with the Christ. Now remember what the word Christ means. It means anointed one. In the Old Testament, it refers, uh, it refers to priests and to kings, yet usually it refers to the king, and more specifically, it refers to the ultimate Davidic king, the one to whom God had promised to David that he would put 
one of his sons on the throne forever, that David would have an everlasting kingdom. And even during the first century, there was a lot of kind of mixed, uh, uh, kind of confused messianic expectations, and yet they were there. And Herod puts two and two together and figures out this, they're talking about the Christ. They're talking about the ultimate Davidic king. Now, the question is, does Herod actually believe in the Christ? Does he actually believe that the, that the Christ has been born? The text doesn't say. It's probably more likely that he sees a threat from the people. If the people actually believe that the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, the one who's supposed to be have the birthright to the throne of Israel, well, they could topple his rule. They could topple his dynasty for his sons. And so he takes swift action. And then the chief priests, the scribes, the religious uh, uh, elite tell him this. They told him, they answered the question. In Bethlehem of Judea, and we already know from 2.1 that Jesus has been born there, Bethlehem of Judea, for it is, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is quoted from Micah 5. Two. And remember what we said last week, and we're going to do this a bunch in Matthew. Whenever a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, you don't want to just say, well, that's nice he quoted that. You want to go back to that original context and understand where was that prophecy spoken and what context was it spoken in? Because by Matthew, or at least here the scribes and the, the religious leaders, by pulling on that text, they're not just pulling on one text, they're pulling on all of the the context around it. So let's go ahead and turn back to Micah. Let's go ahead and turn back to Micah 5.2. And you have to understand, Micah is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. So remember last week we talked about uh, the promise of Emmanuel, the virgin conception prophesied in Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. In fact, they use a lot of the same language at points because they're really addressing the same situation. They're addressing Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah in the at the time, so around 700 BC. And they're essentially saying, Israel and Judah, you're going to go into exile, but that's not the end. It's not just the end that you're going to go into exile. Yes, there's going to be judgment, but there's also going to be salvation. There's also going to be rescue. And the rescue that both Isaiah and Micah predict is going to be led by a new David. It's going to be led by the ultimate king of, of the Davidic line, who's going to bring his people out of exile like a second exodus, and is going to bring them back to the land and restore and restore Israel. So that's the context in which even Micah 5, 2, and following is set in. He's, the, the context is picturing that restoration, that restoration that's going to come in the future. Even though they're going to go into exile soon, there will be an ultimate return. And then we pick it up in Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up, the idea of exile, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return 
to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now you notice this is way longer than what the chief priests and scribes quote in Matthew. The reason is they're probably just kind of compacting it and pressing it together, but essentially they've, they've, uh, they've quoted what's going on here. It's a prediction that the ultimate David, the second David, the new David's going to come and he's going to lead his people out of exile. You can even see here very interestingly the language that reminds us of Isaiah 7:14. You notice in verse 3, uh, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And there's probably a connection here with what we read last week with Isaiah 7:14, the promise of Emmanuel who will lead his people out. Back to Matthew. Back to Matthew. So the chief priests and the scribes, they say, yeah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a new David. That language of shepherding. David was a shepherd. And actually that language at the very end of their quote, who will shepherd my people Israel, is a quote from 2 Samuel 5.2, where, where uh, it's described how Israel recognized David as the shepherd of the people. So the chief priests and the scribes are right. Notice what's interesting here. The Magi didn't have this information, which kind of leads us to believe they probably didn't have access to the Hebrew scriptures, or maybe not to this one anyway, but nor did Herod. Neither one of them had the information, but only through the scriptures, through God's revealed knowledge, through his prophecy, is the final piece of the Magi's puzzle come into place. When we look at how Herod responds to this, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. Probably doing that because he believes whenever the star appeared, whenever it rose, it, uh, that was when the child was born. And we find out later, this is based on him, uh, we'll see this next week, and uh, him killing the children two years old and under, it probably means that we're anywhere from one to two years after the birth of Jesus. Takes a while to get from Babylon to, to Israel. But he wants to know so that he can put uh, his scheme into place. We already know, and the reader knows, Herod's character. And so they already know that Herod is, is stirred up for not a good reason. This is a hostile stirring up against the child. Verse 8, And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and do reverence to him. Right? The idea there, again, it's probably the idea of doing homage to a king. Now the question is, uh, what well, we know based on Herod's character, the reader knows this is not legit. Uh, this, is, this is far from it. This, Herod is hostile. He's scheming. He's plotting. He's hostile to to this child. But it's interesting, it seems like the Magi are taken in by this, which is kind of amazing to believe this. You could imagine them showing up to Jerusalem and making a mistake. They could have thought, well, okay, the king of the Jews is the one going to be born to the current king. But once they get into Jerusalem and figure out, oh, oh, it's not, uh, it's not your child, right? Uh, they might start to suspect that Herod's motives, or they should suspect that Herod's motives aren't good, and yet they are apparently taken in, because later they need a dream to tell him not to go back to Herod. 
So these guys aren't portrayed as wise at all. They're kind of portrayed as kind of foolish, kind of bumbling a little bit, and yet sincere in their search. But here, and here's the thing. Here's what Matthew is doing for us. He's painting a contrast. He's painting a contrast. He's, he's painting a contrast between these folks that have a foolish knowledge, and yet God superintended and ordained that they should come and truly seek the true king of the Jews. And yet, if the religious establishment, those who had the scriptures, those who had the knowledge, truly believed that the Messiah was being born, what should they have done? Or if, if Herod, if Herod actually believed that the Messiah was going to be born, like he, he, he claims, what should they have done? They should have gone with the Magi, shouldn't they have? They should have sought along with the Magi. And yet what's he, what he is happening here is those with the knowledge, the true knowledge, rather than the foolish knowledge of astrology, they're apathetic and they are hostile. They're apathetic and they are hostile, which is why we called this section the knowledgeable apathy and hostility to the king. So we've seen the foolish arrival to reverence the king in verses 1 and 2. We've seen the knowledgeable apathy and hostility to the king in verses 3 through 8. Now let's finally see in the final movement of this story, the joyful reverence to the king, the joyful reverence to the king, verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, so there's another evidence that they were taken in, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, many people have tried to figure out what's going on with the star, right? It's a good question. What's going on with the star? Is the star actually moving? Or is it only, you know, we, when we see the sun, we say the sun is rising. But we don't actually mean that the sun's actually moving in that sense. From our perspective, it's moving but we know the planet's rotating and so it appears to rise. It's possible that this is just describing that from their perspective, the star appears to move, although the night sky is just rotating and things are working out in such a way that it appears that the star is standing over the place. So some people have posited, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a conjunction of two planets that seem to occur during this time, or maybe this is a supernova that happened, or maybe uh, that this was a comet or uh, maybe even an angel. Uh, sometimes a, a star is equated with an angel in Scripture, and so maybe the angel's moving. Uh, we don't know. We don't know if this is uh, natural in the sense that it's under God's providence and he arranged this, nor do we know if this is supernatural with a, an actual moving heavenly body. A star in this time could just be any luminous thing in the night sky. We don't know whether it's natural or supernatural, but we don't need to know. That's not the point. That's not the point, right? We just need to know that God superintended all of these affairs and a foolish magi who are coming by their foolish knowledge of astrology, we just need to know that it guided them there, that God, uh, despite their foolishness, brought them to the right place, brought them to the right place, to the right house. And going into the house, oh, verse 10, sorry, when they saw the star... So the star's appearing to stand over this house and mark the location of where the, the child is. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, 
That is emphatic language in English, and it's emphatic language in Greek. It's the same. It's, it's, they rejoiced with joy, a great joy, and extremely. It's, this, is, this is emphatic. This is, this is, uh, these folks were happy, very happy. Not just because they saw the star, but because of why they've been looking for the star to begin with and where the, the, what, what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to do homage to this king. They know somehow in God's superintendence and his providence, they know this is a superior king. This is the king of kings. And they are joyful to come to him. And again, this is part of Matthew's painting this picture. He's contrasting those who have all the knowledge those religious leaders and the religious elite in Jerusalem and Herod and their apathetic and hostile response to the king to an exceedingly joyful response, the proper response to this king. That's the sort of response that the true king, that Jesus the king deserves, exceedingly great joy. And it keeps going, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Again, that same word, doing reverence, doing homage. They fell down, they prostrate themselves on the ground, and they do reverence to this king, acknowledging he is the superior king. We are under him. We are under him and under his authority. And then they express this reverence in a tangible way. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. These are expensive gifts, a kingly gift for this king, extravagant. You know, the reality is this isn't the first time that gold and frankincense or spices are mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, can you think of a time when there was a Davidic king who was reigning and people from a foreign land came and brought him presents to honor and bring tribute to that king? Well, you should be thinking of Solomon. Solomon in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, this great Davidic king, this one who's built the temple and this one who is, is amazingly wise and, and great, and she stands in awe and she gives a gift. She gives a gold, um, gift of gold and a lot of spices because that is the tribute the Davidic king deserves. That is the tribute the Davidic king with the Davidic covenant, with God backing him, deserves. We can even see Solomon comment on this in a sense in Psalm 72. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, Solomon writes this psalm, but he's not speaking about himself primarily. He's speaking about the ultimate Davidic king, a.k.a. the Messiah, the Christ. And he says this in Psalm 72, verse 8, may he, that's the ultimate Davidic king of which he's a representative, but he's not the ultimate guy, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, the idea of the, the Davidic king, it's not just he's going to rule over Jerusalem uh, or Israel. He's going to rule over the whole earth. That's the nature of the ultimate Davidic king. May he, desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. 
May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Now, we said that the Magi, they're not kings, but it's picturing that reality that this is what this king deserves. He deserves the tribute, the reverence, the homage of all the nations and peoples and languages of the earth. That's the extent of the Davidic kingdom. You can see this thread picked up on and similar language to what we've been saying in Isaiah 60. Remember, Isaiah is written and he's saying, you guys are going to go into exile, but God's going to bring you out and he's going to bring you out with that Davidic king and he's going to restore Israel and he's going to restore uh, the centrality of Israel among the whole world. And so you see, uh, and, and there's even hints of what we call now the new covenant, even in chapter 59, the description of the giving of the spirit and the new covenant. So kind of tying a lot of those pieces together. But then in, in Isaiah 60, we see similar language that reminds us of what we're, or, uh, or Matthew reminds us of this language that we see in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the your there is feminine. It's referring to Israel. So he's talking about Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Again, Israel. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness uh, the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. And what's this picturing? It's picturing the exaltation of Israel and the, the tribute of the nations flowing to it. Why? Because Israel at this point is under the messianic king. So tying this together and going back to Matthew... What is going on with the Magi in their giving of these gifts, of giving this reverence? It's a preview of coming attractions. It's a preview of coming attractions. That this is the king of kings, and these foolish Magi who were directed against all odds to reverence this king, they are expressing the proper attitude of worship from the nations that will be to the ultimate Davidic king, that will be to Jesus of Nazareth forever. They're a trailer for what will happen even yet in the future. Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So evidently they were taken in, so they need a dream, a divine dream to warn them, don't go back. They departed to their own country by another way. So again, pulling everything together, what is Matthew painting a picture of? He's contrasting those who have the knowledge, those who have the scriptures are either apathetic or hostile, and yet these in Israel, and yet these people from far away, these nations, these Gentiles, 
who don't have the knowledge, who have a foolish knowledge, God graciously brings them and they sincerely do honor and reverence to the king of kings. And it brings us back to the central idea of this text. What is Matthew trying to do for his original Jewish audience? And what can we take away? He's calling his Jewish audience, joyfully reverence Jesus the king and guard yourself from knowledgeable apathy or hostility. Remember, like we said, even if you were a believing Jew, your, your fellow Jews around you would, would think you believing in the Messiah is foolish. Where's his kingdom? What's going on, right? But what Matthew is saying, no, you have the true king. And you can, you, who's the fool? The fool is the one who has the knowledge, the, 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 the direct revelation of God, and yet ignores and is apathetic or is hostile toward the true king whom Jesus of Nazareth is. Which brings us back to the danger of church. Because we have knowledge, don't we? In fact, in this time, we have more knowledge, more availability to the scriptures of God's word that he has spoken to us than any other people in the history of humankind. And we will be held accountable to it. We cannot. Let's ask ourselves some diagnostic questions here. We, we know these things. We know Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus is supposed to be the Christ. We know Jesus died for uh, the sins of his people. We know he rose again. We know that he ascended on high. What does that truth do to your heart? The fact of the matter is you can know a lot of facts about Jesus and not know Jesus. And that is a dangerous and horrific place to be. Are you apathetic or even hostile? Maybe you don't express it externally, but in your heart, are you apathetic or even hostile toward Jesus, even though you know a lot of facts about him? Friend, if so, you are in danger. If Jesus does, hearing about Jesus and knowing he's the king and knowing what he's done, if that does nothing to your heart, you do not know him. You do not know him at all. Because those religious leaders, those scribes and Pharisees didn't. Or you might think, well, I know the facts and I'm able to line it all up. I can even give you a true presentation of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners and only those who put their trust in him can know God. And so I believe in Jesus. You know, I have a sort of mental knowledge. I've, I've worked it all out. So yeah, I'm a Christian. But no one reasons their way to God, right? Not Think of these magi, right? They're coming with a sincere faith. They sincerely submitted themselves and did homage to Jesus. They had a true faith, even apart from their lack of knowledge. And yet it was only God's superintendence of their hearts, only God working in their hearts, only God bringing them to Christ that allowed them to know Christ. So no one knows Jesus because you reasoned your way to him. It's only because God overcame your own foolishness, just like he overcame the foolishness of these astrologers. Here's what we're getting at. Is knowing Jesus your exceedingly great joy? If someone were to ask you, what is your exceedingly great joy? What do you rejoice in in your whole life? Not, 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 and we're not just talking, oh, I can give the right answer of, yeah, it's supposed to be Jesus. But does this do something to your heart? 
Is knowing Jesus your exceedingly great joy? And if it is not, then you do not know him. You see, the fact of the matter is, Jesus is very black and white. He will have you have him as your greatest joy, or you will have him as your greatest enemy. That is who the King of Kings is. He's not begging for you to know him. He is offering you the chance to know him and to enjoy him in all his majesty, in all his wonder, and in all joy for all eternity. And that should have a practical effect on your life. Have you prostrated your life? Remember talking about the idea of allegiance. It's not just that I know these things. It's not even that I have an emotional fuzzy uh, about Jesus. No, what's going on here with the Magi is that they prostrated their lives. They submitted to the king. Their allegiance, even from afar, was to this king. So have you prostrated your life before Jesus, the king of all? And does that show in your daily life and how you make decisions about life does it, is it sacrificial? These things, they gave gifts, right? They, they practically demonstrated their allegiance and their homage to this king. Does, does he own, does Jesus own your allegiance expressed in concrete action day by day? Who is the king of your life? Who directs what you do day by day? If it is not Jesus, then you do not know him. But here's the, here's the good news of all of this, Right? That God does, God does work in our hearts. We cry out to God, oh God, overcome my foolishness, overcome my foolish infatuation with sin and with things that are other than you and open my eyes to see that you are the greatest joy, that my heart will not be satisfied in anyone except in you. There is nothing to compare with you. And then we come to Jesus, we, we give up all in a sense, but we really haven't given up anything because Jesus is our exceedingly great joy. And friend, if you realize that you have been apathetic, you've been hostile, that you don't know Christ, come to him. Come to him not only as your Savior, as, but to the Savior from the, your own foolish desires, as the one who will be your king, as the one who will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Come to him as your exceedingly great joy. And the amazing thing is this king is gentle and lowly. He calls later in Matthew, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and you will learn from me, for my yoke is easy, and you'll find rest for your souls. That is the call to come and swear allegiance to the king, to bow before him as your exceedingly great joy, and to enjoy him for all eternity. And he will save you from your sins, your infatuation with yourself, your infatuation with the things of this world. He will be your all. And that is the good news of the good news. And that is the call of this passage, to joyfully reverence Jesus the King and guard yourself from knowledgeable apathy or hostility. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We submit ourselves to you. We prostrate ourselves as a congregation. Lord, those who are here and are your people is those people who are the church, Lord, we, we come before you and we corporately submit and bow our knees to you. We prostrate our, our, 
ourselves before you because you are the exceedingly great joy. Oh Lord, rescue us from our own foolishness that would during the week seek for anything other than you, that would seek for anything other than you, O oh Lord God. Rescue us from the deadly apathy and hostility that our own hearts breed. It's only because of you, Lord God, that overcomes our own foolishness. Do that for us. Do that for all of us in this room this morning, myself included. And Lord, help us this week to have you as our exceedingly great joy, to know you and to know the scriptures, but not to be apathetic, but to have our hearts enraptured and enthralled and in love with who you are, Lord Jesus. And may we live our lives because of your love for us, that you, you have drawn us to yourself, you've overcome our foolishness, you've made, you've made yourself our exceedingly great joy, and help us to live out of that in concrete expression for our allegiance to you, our loyalty to you, our King. May you receive all tribute and honor of all peoples, tongues, languages, and nations of this earth, and we know you will, and we ask that you would come, Lord Jesus, and to establish your kingdom. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. Send you out. This is modified from Ephesians 1, 17 through 21. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Church, you are sent.